Hi, Tijo. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Activation Project podcast, where we activate your mind, activate your tribe, and activate the world. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background, name, age, where you're from? Yes. So I am sitting in a conference room where I work in Oklahoma. It's a small town in Oklahoma. And I've been here now almost 10 years. I've been here in the U.S. about 14. So I come from India. I grew up in India, southern India. And I came to the U.S. in 2006. And yes, you mentioned that I should also reveal my age. I'm old, 44. (laughs) Going on 15. (laughs) Okay, and you have two kids? I have, yeah. I'm happily married. Got married in 2010. Found a girl from this little town of Oklahoma. And so we got married here in Bartlesville. And she moved to New York City. Didn't last long there. We decided to move here instead. And then we have two children, Alexis and Zachariah. My wife's name is Erin. Alexis is nine. Zachariah is four. So that's my little family. Oh, love it. Okay, so why don't you tell our audience from your perspective how you and I got in touch with each other? (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. I got a weird uh, I am uh, from a guy that I hardly knew on a forum. And he said somebody needed help and he was trying to help. And I looked at podcast cover design that you guys wanted me to look at. And so he showed me what he created. And I was like, that is uh, really interesting that he got involved with this. And I was, you know, I didn't ask much, I guess. I, I asked him, like, how do you know them? I said, oh, just a friend and blah, blah, blah. And so I was at work and I think I was just finishing it up. And then I thought, okay, I'll uh, give Olivia a call and see what she needed, I could spend a little bit of time, maybe fix this up and if I could. And then I called Olivia and we got on the phone, started having this conversation. And well, that day is kind of like hazy to me because I didn't expect the conversation that we had. I was in a bit of a shock to learn that she and I were in the same group of people in different parts of the world. And that was shocking to me to know that was what was going on. I think if you dive deeper, we probably could find a few names that we knew each other through or something of that nature. Or what I mean is that we probably could find some common connections. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking about. And then we went back and forth on the design. And so you guys now use that design, right? For your yeah. podcast cover? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll tell this story really quickly from my perspective, from my side. So we were rushing to get everything together for the first episode of our podcast about seven weeks ago. And the last little piece that we needed was the artwork. And I had a couple of friends helping me put something together. But then my sound engineer, he just wasn't loving it. And then I thought that I had had it. But then people were like, "Ah, not really, not really. So we're approaching maybe like five hours until we have to have the picture uploaded for the podcast, which was going to be released the next morning at 5 a.m. Meanwhile, I'm getting like 50 Facebook requests every day, which is okay because I'm trying to, you know, expand my following. So I'll just go through them and quickly like accept, 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 accept. And then every now and then, you know, one of the guys will slide into my DM. 
I was like, you know what? I'm going to start using these guys that are sliding into my DM to help me with these projects that I have. So randomly, I see this guy, he added me from Norway. And, you know, and I was like, hmm, he looks kind of techie. So I was like, hey, I could use your professional opinion with something. Could you help me? And then I like sent him the pictures. And he's like, oh, yeah, actually, I do graphic design. I could totally help you. And he's like, what is this for? And I was like, oh, it's for a podcast, which is about, you know, the religious sex cult that I grew up in, the children of God. And he goes, no way, I was also in that. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, I was visiting Canada. I was there on a two-year visa. He's like, they suckered me in with a tract at the mall. And so I joined them and blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, you know what? He's like, actually, there's a guy in our company. I don't know him personally, but he's from India and he's writing a book on his time in the family. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And I was like, okay, so could you help me? And he's like, yes. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the gym. I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll message you when I get out. So an hour goes by, I check my phone and this guy's like, oh, hey, I'm still busy at work, but that guy that I told you about said he could help you. And I was like, okay. He's like, I gave him your number. I hope that's okay. And before I could really think about it, I was like, all right. And then I started getting a phone call from Oklahoma. And part of me was like, oh, what is this? Like somebody came at me from Facebook. Now I'm getting passed on to someone from India to help me with graphic design. They said that they're going to do it for free, but this sounds like a cat. So I don't really think too much. And I the phone, I'm like, hello? <laughs> and GJ's like, hey, you know, and so I'm like, well, I'm going to figure out this guy's for real. So I think I just asked him maybe one or two questions about the children of God and the family. And then I knew right away that you had been in it. So then we yeah. just started going into all of our mutual trauma, which is crazy because we have such a similar story. He was in New York at the same time I was in Chicago at the very end of his time, but we'll go into that. And then, yeah, he started out of the kindness of his heart working on the picture for the podcast. He gave it to us like within like, I want to say like five minutes of the deadline to upload the picture. And it just turned out to be perfect. And it was just like in the nick of time, the whole day, I just couldn't believe that that had happened. I remember you, we rode our bikes that morning and you're like, I can't believe this just happened. And she's like, I met two people and I don't even like, how does this happen? And I was like, well, you know, synchronicities, you have vibrating at a certain level and so are they. And he's going through something to actually put out there and write a book and you're creating something. So your energies match with turning it into something better than what it was. Hell yes. Yes. I love when that happens. It's so amazing. Okay. So we always like to start our podcast with a transitional dilemma, a transitional dilemma that served as a catalyst for transformation and change in your life. So can you give us your transitional dilemma that led you to joining the group in the first place? I grew up in a Catholic family in India. And during the 80s and early 90s, there was what now you would identify here in America with what they call a revival of some sort in through the church. And this was unknown to the Catholicism in general, because they don't really do 
much more outside of their ritualistic prayers and things like that. And there was a priest that came to our congregation who we heard have been kicked out in the past from several congregations for his outrageous ways of doing things. And so we were all kind of expecting some of that behavior when he got on there. And we heard that he got kicked out of the last church that he served at. And he took the whole congregation to a rice field and preached the gospel on the rice field. And so we were kind of like, wow, what is this guy going to bring to our little village? And of course, my parents were curious. My dad and my mom, you know, we did, again, the ritualistic way of attending church. But nothing more than that. You know, there was no real, or at least I did not hear. They probably now may say differently, but <laughs> to my observation, there wasn't anything different. So he comes in and he starts preaching completely different in many cases against the Catholic Church. And my dad took a note about it. said, what is going on? So he started attending a middle of the week, which never happened. And started attending church, started uh, grabbing his all, and he started doing his outrageous, what we outrageous. Basically, what he was practicing what he really believed from the scriptures. He was going after it. He wasn't adhering to the Catholic order and things like that. He was just really a rebellious kind of guy. My dad was really liking it. <laughs> and he started going, he started pulling us into it. So that's kind of like the first kind of a bump that I would say that I received. Yeah, I was just going to mention because, yeah, for me, it was so odd. I don't know how many Indian converts there were, but you were an Indian, a second generation convert, right? Basically, because you're around the same age as the second generation family members. Our parents were turned on by the message of David Ratberg, which got them all excited. And that's why they joined and informed mm -hmm. the cult. Your dad essentially was turned on by another sort of sure. outside-of-the-box thinker and raised you sort of like that. I mean, you were second generation. I completely agree. That is exactly right. I must add why we were even Catholics in one line. Thomas, the disciple, came to India in first century. And he was there in 8058 preaching the gospel in my neighborhood. And he was killed by the Hindus three years later by the order of the king. And so we were from the caste of the Nambudris, which is the high caste, which is now something that you cannot speak out loud back in India most of the time. He converted the upper caste Hindus. And there was another well-known figure in, or he passed away about four months ago now, in America, who is well-known from the same caste system in the same family group that we would come from called the Nambuzaris. And his name is Ravi Zacharias. You've probably heard of him. And then in the 13th, 14th centuries, I believe, maybe before that, I'm not getting my correct history here, but there were invasions from Spain and Portugal and a little bit of French. And those guys were Catholics and they had missionaries, Catholic missionaries come through uh, their army for merchandise, but also other things. And so India is pretty much invaded on the west, northwest side and down to the south. And then all these first-generation Christians who have followed the disciple Thomas now become Roman Catholics through another conversion. And that's how we belong to a Catholic order, a Roman Catholic order. Wow. And then, that's right, when I was 18 years old, my dad passed away. Now, my dad and I did not have a good relationship growing up. And towards the end, 
I started doing the things that he loved, not because he wanted me to. I took an interest in the same way in electronics and in computers, electronics and photography, actually, I would say. Can you expand on why you didn't have a good relationship with your father? Yeah, I think in the beginning, it was like he didn't really emotionally attached to any one of his kids. He didn't want to get married. He didn't want to have a family because his dad left them when he was just a year old and never came back. Now, these things are unheard of in India. In India, men do not usually do that. So it's an unusual case where he was raised by his uncle and aunt. And his mother then passed away when he was just eight years old, I believe. And so he grew up with cousins and he didn't have a good childhood, got into, I think, a lot of different trouble. We never heard of in detail of all the things that he has done. And he was 38 years old when he got married. Now, again, that is a shocker in India because people in India usually get married within their early 20s, even men. Worldwide, it's getting delayed to in the 30s, etc. But back in the day, it was a shocker. And so his sister forced him into that marriage. Everything is arranged marriage. So my mother never knew him before. And they got married, three kids. I think he was really suffering from a lot of different types of anxiety, but also didn't know how to deal with it. He had a lot of anger issues. He had alcoholism. He smoked. That's how he was suppressing those things. I didn't realize any of this until I grew up here and starting to learn more and more about mental health and things of that nature. We never looked at my father as someone who might be struggling with depression or anything like that. But now I do. I have a lot more sympathy and love for him even though he's no longer with us. Did he thank you guys? Oh, yeah. I got a lot of it. In fact, his anger was often taken out of me or my mother. I think that the younger ones got less of it. I got more of it. And especially after the priest showed up and he started engaging himself in the church more than his home, that was a huge issue in the family, especially for my mother, who, you know, wandered him around, but also he started doing all these you know, religious stuff, which there was a conflict. And she later on came together with all of us, now starting to do similar things at church, etc. And now I was an altar boy. I was a piano slash keyboard player at the church. I was involved, never really understanding the spiritual side of things. I was just doing ritualistically. Plus, I liked a couple of girls from the choir. So that was the main reason I actually went to play the keyboard. And <laughs> to say that you felt as if your protector, the guy who was supposed to be the protector of you and your family, was not showing up in his role? Well, the thing is, he was feeding us. We were actually really poor, and I don't even know how dad managed to feed us all. And I don't remember a day that we didn't really have food. They managed to get something. I had days without food after I left home, but he managed to do that. So it wasn't so much of that type of negligence, but it was mostly emotional type of things. There wasn't any father and son conversation. I never sat down to have a conversation with my father ever. Or he ever held you or hugged you or anything. The only time that he would actually hold you is right here on the face when he's combing your hair. Because <laughs> oh, you only touch the... No, that's, that's how I grew up. And so it was really difficult to attached and have that conversation until about towards one year before he passed away. He was gravely ill. He had asthma for 25 years and he was ill. And then he was admitted to the hospital. That day, it was late in the night and no one had any food because we've been going through tests and paperwork to get him in the medical college. And I walked 30 minutes in the dark 
to find this little hole-in-the-wall restaurant, you know, buy some food for us. We came back. My mom and dad ate, and I ate. And then as I was kind of turning from his bed to lay on my mat that was laid on the floor by my mother, he gripped my hands. And I thought, oh, man, am I in trouble for something? That was my first thought. And he just started profusely crying, sobbing. And when he grabbed, he said, I'm really sorry for all the things that I've done to you. And my mother jumped in because it's India. This is not appropriate. And I think that's the change that I see in dealing with trauma, dealing with What do you mean your mom jumped in? My mother jumped in to try to separate us and say, men do not do this. Fathers do not apologize to sons. Oh, shit. You tried to interfere on the final resolve you were getting closure with your dad. She has no concept of it. I mean, not. She was trying to protect. It was totally unconscious. Yeah, That's what happened. Yeah, to her, dad is lowering than himself. Oh, Lord. And she could not handle watching that because she always held him up there and that's how it would be. And so there was, you know, the cultural aspect of it. And, you know, people that would have that. Her whole life was a lie, like serving him, respecting him, letting him do what he did, supporting his decisions. And then he's to like, a great degree. Yeah, to a great degree. But she also pushed back. I wouldn't say he was the only person who instigated any of this. And obviously they had fights came from both sides. She had plenty to say about matters. <laughs> so it wasn't all that. But I think there was the stature of the head of the household cannot do this in our culture or in our belief system was her take. But dad didn't let go. Dad actually turned to her and apologized to her also. And I went, we're not trained to, or never heard of any of that before. And we didn't know how to respond, neither of us. We went to bed that night. I can tell you that was like a bookmark in my life where things changed for me, things changed for him. We finally started doing things as a father and son. He took me to a movie for the very first time. Very first time. Well, the tickets were sold out that day. So he said, do you want to get on a bus and get home? Or do you want to walk with me? If you do walk with me, I have a surprise for you. So I said, I'll walk with you. It's only, I mean, it's not, it's not very long. It's like two miles, it's nothing. So he went to a shop and got me a badminton bat that everybody around me had. And it was very expensive. Now, we're talking about 22 cents is what we're talking about here. We didn't have that. But if we bought that, then we would not have the money to get on the bus. I was very happy. And I walked back with him. And then we started enjoying some movies at home together. Actually, I would get the VHS borrowed from someone. And we didn't have television until 2006, actually. So we didn't have television. So we would go to the neighbor's house to watch some of the movies that he liked and loved. And I remember laughing at the same way with him and just looking at each other, just having a good time. Never, ever had that in my life. And then one afternoon, he suddenly dies of a heart attack. So I had about a year of that mending relationships because I really hated him. And I wish he died for many, many years to suddenly crying out to God and saying, why, why did you take me? Because it was my mom and me finally got a taxi after almost waiting for 30, 40 minutes to take him to the hospital. Now in India, you know, you don't get to call an ambulance right away. There's nothing in rural areas. So he's laying on us in the back of the car, never thinking that he actually passed away. 
the whole time I thought that he's still alive, he's just unconscious. We get to the hospital, they're going to get him oxygen and he'll be back to life. And I remember this going in the middle of this rice field. The sun is setting, it's about six o'clock, thinking that he would come back. And it was actually his life was sunset. And uh, mine, at that point, I thought ended because we had no way of making any money. We had nothing even at that point. And so six months later, I left home, went to Bombay. The city of Bombay. Let's pause there really quick. (laughs) There's a couple of things that I want to go over. Do you want to make any observations before we go over quick? In what I'm seeing from what you're talking about, it's a lot of corresponding things for the ACE test. I already see like that's exactly what I was saying. I counted about seven markers at least. So you know the basis of the activation project is the ACE and the resilience test, which measures trauma and brain damage in the brain from adverse childhood experiences. And major cognitive dysfunction starts at a four. I counted about a seven that you've gotten. I scored an eight. Christina scored 10, right? Yeah. Christina scored a 10. The resilience must be off the chart, you know, that you had to have gone through all of those things and how it must have felt to finally have what you wanted with him and for that to be taken away. I mean, that must have been really difficult for you. Yeah, I didn't expect that at all. I thought that we're going to have a few more. I mean, I didn't think that he was going to die when he was 52. <laughs> I mean, that's the age. I'm 44, not too far. So he was pretty young when he died. And my mother, 10 years younger, 42, younger than me when he passed away. I didn't think of that until this moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I must say that he, when he passed away, there was complete stop. Our cousins or relatives our neighbors fed us for the next year to two years. That's what I was going to ask you, how you guys managed for those next few months. And then the other thing I know that you were saying how it was just so unheard of for him to have started crying and apologize for that culture, I believe probably was his attachment to the Christian religion and Christian faith, which, you know, is the road to redemption, especially. I'm so glad. No? So glad you brought that up. Because that, I think, is very important. Even at this stage, with the next set of possible higher intense traumas, what I experienced that day was a changed man. And it was the gospel that changed him. I can tell you that today. It's the gospel that changed him. Because without that influence, he had no idea how to navigate this life. For his change of heart to have those words come out of him, for the person that I've known him, it had to be an external influence, not an internal influence. Now, in other words, we could always say that God lives in us, and he does. And that is, in that way, an internal influence also, but not without the external influence of that knowledge and that understanding of um, love, affection, all of that, like all of that that were broken for so many years just came together in that moment. And I didn't think, for many years, I didn't think about this. This memory came to me when I started writing my book and I had to stop and I stopped hard it would take another two months before I could resume writing and I would go back and I call mom and I would talk to her talk to her about this instance and she's like are you going to write about it yes I am <laughs> she's still concerned about it I said don't worry about it mom this needs to be written people need to know how people change and change overnight sometimes his change wasn't overnight it took several years before 
we came to that conclusion. And, you know, so I have both like, you know, so I, I felt like that he received his forgiveness that he needed. I received that forgiveness myself because I went on for many years for not forgiving myself for hating him so much because of the things that he has done. His anger only spikes every few months. It's not like that he was day to day violent like that. He was just very unattached. He would be home, he would be doing his photography, or he would be doing his electronics work, or he would be at work, which he was in finance, and he would do a lot of work in the yard. You know, he was a good farmer, I would say, even. Even though we had a small little yard where he raised a lot of things. And so he was active in that way, but very unattached to his children. And so I was able to receive that forgiveness myself for the things that I've done because of this. And so there was a lot of healing. You know, what was his relationship? You said he was taken care of by his aunt and uncle. Did he have a close yeah. relationship with them? I would say at least the, what I observed with them was they cared for him. They loved him. And actually, that's where he worked. That family back in the day, it was one of the richest families. And so he worked in one of their companies. They lost all of it for many other reasons, but that's where he worked. And so they gave him a life. On only fed him, also sent to school, anything that he wanted to do, and also gave him a job. I think they had a good relationship. So because the major cognitive behavioral economic dysfunction starts at a four, you definitely are around a six, seven, maybe higher, depending on if you had a family member go to prison or something like that. What was prevalent? Which of these effects do you have, or if any, in your life? Emotional, behavioral, social, economical. Well, yeah, I grew up poor in many ways. And so I think it was, the money was quite a struggle for a long time. And until I got hired by Microsoft. <laughs> and once they hired me, things changed there. Now, as far as I worked there in 2002, so in my mid-twenties, I would say. You know, up until then, it was harsh. How did you put yourself through school? What was happening with your family? Who was supporting them? What kind of job were you working? What was the hustle at the time? So I had never been to actual any type of school. I went to high school. That's it. So it took 10 years of that. And then I got trained on electronics for the next two years and that's kind of like my total education i don't have a degree to speak in anything yeah and so i left home to be in bombay started working there for one company in the electronics didn't last very long i was constantly sick because of the new environment new food nothing was agreeing with me and there's a tremendous amount of stress about life back home, how mom is surviving, siblings surviving. I'm 1,500 miles away, and it's not an affordable train ride. It was quite expensive for me at the time. And we're not talking more than five or 600 rupees, which is about less than $10. But you have to save up for months to get that kind of money back in the day. And so... And I don't even know how my dad fed the five of us for many years for just $8 that comes to his hand every month. So, <laughs> and I'm actually sitting in one of the biggest corporate offices in America, a Fortune 
five company in the oil and gas industry on the management side and the leadership side. Now, this is the miracle of life, isn't it? What's your job title? I'm a governance lead for SAP and ERP. I was manager over a number of applications here for six and a half years in the last couple of years and change. I've been doing special projects because we are in what we call our digital transformation phase. We're changing quite a few things as far as infrastructure. Okay, so you didn't last long the electronics job, but what kind of emotional issues were you facing? Did you struggle with anger, depression, anxiety? Like what was all your mental state like? All of them. Mainly all of them. Mainly <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and did you become reliant on any drugs or alcohol or how did you cope with mm. having all these internal issues? So I really disliked the taste of alcohol, even though I consumed it. So my dad passed away when I was 18. And so I was in Bombay in the last few months of my 18 years of age and the 19 and 20. I think those three years, I had really bad company, I would say. And so I drank with them. I smoked a little bit once in a while. And I disliked golf very much <laughs> still. But I did it just, and I never thought of it. But it was like, you know, party with them so you don't think of anything else. You don't think of home. You don't think of the things you have to deal with until, you know, Monday morning. So Saturday and Sunday were wasted. Now, Sundays were holy. Because we, uh, these drunkards, all of us, went to church on oh. Sunday morning because I was in the choir. So I had to be up there for practice and I had to practice early in the morning. So I would be in the practice. And I would play for at least two services before I go home. And then Sunday night, they get drunk again before Monday morning work. And I joined in with them for, you know, a couple of those years, never liking the taste of it, or I still dislike that. And so that was my go-to. I did suffer quite a bit from depression, but I did not know this word before. Uh, what was your love life? My first girlfriend was... When I was 25, <laughs> never date anybody. It's not a thing back in India. You don't do that. I mean, especially in my family, it was completely against everything, any idea. Even liking somebody or even talking about somebody who like is not acceptable in our culture. So we never talked about, other than, yes, you would like somebody, but you keep it yourself. After that, I guess I was just 18 or 19, hung out with these guys. and then. One day, my work sent me to an orphanage to take care of some computers that my boss donated. Now, the thing is, I will tell you that I did not know English as a language until 2000. I didn't speak a word of it until then. And so in 1998, late 1998, I was sent to this orphanage to care for some computers that my boss donated. And they said that the training program for the orphans were conducted by a missionary group, and so you have to wait until they show up. So I waited, stressing, how am I going to speak to them? I don't speak English. And I just sat there on the stairs towards the orphanage building, waiting for them. And there's this guy comes in with this cowboy hat, really tall guy in a Jeep with a bunch of kids. And they all kind of come out, and they all go into some place. He comes and shakes hands with me. There was a movie shoot happening on the other side of the orphanage, of a Bollywood movie. And uh, 
still don't know which movie that was. I need to find that out. I thought he was going to be one of those guys, part of that movie set. He actually comes to say hi to me and he introduces himself to me, says his name. Oh, and then he said, uh, David James is what the name he gave me. And how old are you at this time? 22, I think, roughly. I have to look it up. Yeah, so he comes and says hi to me. And we talk as in, he says things. He tried Hindi. He tried a little bit of Tamil with me. None of this works because I don't speak any language but one. Malayalam is the only language that I ever known. Wait, what is it? Malayalam. Can you break that down? M-A-L-A-Y-A-L-A-M. Malayalam. Malayalam. Yeah. Malayalam. Okay. Wow. Spoken. Yeah, it's spoken by... You didn't even speak Hindi. How are you getting a job? Because you're working with electronics, so it didn't matter? Yeah, and I found words here and there to say. And in fact, one of my bosses at the time got so mad at me one day because I cannot express what's wrong with this computer. Even though I knew what was wrong with it, I just couldn't express it, articulate it. And he just yelled and screamed at me and asked me to go home. And I did. And I didn't realize that he actually didn't want he actually didn't want me to go home, but he was it was a saying. I had no idea. So next morning I come back, one of his assistants comes and says, You were not supposed to leave. <laughs> That's how much I understood English and the phrases and the context. And so I didn't speak the language. So luckily, the super, and so he said, what language do I speak? And I said, Malayalam. He said, hold on. And he ran inside, got the superintendent of the orphanage. She was from my home state and spoke my language. And so she was the middle person who translated back and forth the time that I tried to fix those computers. At the end of that, he gave me a piece of paper and his phone number, his name, and he said, would you call me? I have a few computers at home that I would love for you to take a look at. I said, sure. And then I grabbed the paper. I went home after that. And then for eight months, I asked several of my friends to help me learn the basics of English that I could grasp. Uh, I could write it down in my language. I could repeat, you know, teach myself to say, and the expected answers and what to respond with, et cetera, et cetera. I just like, I think three pages of paper that I wrote down what the native English speakers may or may not say. But now this is an Australian guy. I've, like, you know, their English is quite different. And eight months later, I finally gathered the energy and the boldness to finally give him a call to think that I actually know what to say. I had this paper spread out on the table and made a phone call. So he was from the family? He was. Oh, my God. So you met the family at 22. You didn't yep. speak any English. You didn't speak yep. Hindi. spoke a dialect that probably, what percentage of the world speaks that? Well, if you think India is 1.3 billion people, and that is probably the most widely spoken language, because many states speak that as either a first or second. Most of the time, it is second language. I don't know. I can't say 50%, probably 30 or 40%. So 1.3 billion people, 40%, what does that come down to? That's how many million people speak it. I will need a calculator to do that actual math, but it is significant okay, okay. amount of people actually So a significant speak. amount of people in India speak that language. I, I will add an insult to the injury. My mother was a Hindi teacher. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it tells you how sad and bad a student I was. <laughs> 
again, even Hindi teachers back where I come from probably couldn't hold that conversation. Oh. They knew that. Was there strict boundaries of like trying to, you know, enforce that you were a good student? Like, did she teach you at home? Like, how, what did your education look like growing up? India education is like this. Every school year, many, many students commit suicide because they cannot make grades. The pressure that is in India and China are criminal in many ways. So we were under tremendous pressure. And so I got beatings at home and I got beatings at school for not being very good at anything that I did. For all my growing up years, it was a consistent pressure. And every school year, before exams, some students commit suicide. After the exam results, more commit suicide. And it continues. I have not been any fix. It's, it requires a societal change in order to fix that problem. If you think about 1.3 billion people, you know, a handful of nice, really nice jobs, you have to fight for your position. And one of the ways they fight it is through education and getting high grades. So now students are getting, like, you know, in the back in the day, you get one or two people get the first and second grade. Now, like 10 or 15 of them in a the class get first grade, you know, first rank, for example. It's almost making it impossible even to further grade them. So I don't know what issues are or how to fix them, but I do know that they put an enormously unhealthy amount of pressure on students. And so that backfired on me because I don't learn by being taught. I learn things myself. Right. And that's the big difference. It's almost like they were trying to teach an elephant to climb the tree while the monkeys were okay climbing at ease. I was. Exactly. You probably have an ingrained defiance against authority, as it were, because the authoritative mm. figure in your life was very undependable and not really trustworthy at times. That is a high marker, right? It's like, right, it's just being defiant, being insubordinate to authority because you don't have respect for them. You weren't taught respect because they weren't respectable. What happened in my case a lot. Mm. The whole idea was to get higher grades, get into bigger schools, universities, or try to go to abroad, like US, Canada, UK, get further education, and then land this amazing job and you're set for life. Or do the same thing in India slightly differently. That was the idea. And I didn't fit the mold. And so I had to do, plus after father died, even at the time, even if he was alive, I don't think we could afford to go to school. That's why we had to limit ourselves in what we did. So the first few jobs, I have to take, you know, 100 interviews to get called by maybe five. And if I'm lucky, I get that one job. <laughs> that was a norm for me because India didn't hire people without degrees for things that I do now or things I did back then. And significant enough, one of my roommates at the time put a lot of pressure to create a fake certificate of my degree from one of the universities. And they have a large ring of people, even inside the university, that will make your official entry, your mark list, everything, grades, everything in the computer system and give you a proper certificate that can be backtraced, which means it won't come back as fraudulent mm. and they spent a lot of money buying those so that's how we got ahead and he would say i was an idiot for not doing it i said i don't have the money to do it he came up with the money he said you take this money you do it get better at this and i was talking to a friend of mine and after a lot of conversation he said you know if you do this you make it ahead but if you're ever in a position where you're thinking about life 
and you think about the things that you've done right and wrong, you will be living with this life for the rest of your life. And if you're able to do that, go for it. He wasn't intending that you should do it. He was intending that you should make a decision based on what he shared with you. Wow. So I went home, gave the money back to him and said, I'm not doing it. And I will only get as far as I can with what I got. And this same friend of mine or former roommates would tell me just a handful of years ago that he's living that lie and I am living in freedom. Wow. This is what he told me. Oh my God. So essentially you were faced with the choice or the option to falsify your credentials information yeah. to try to yeah. cheat and get ahead for your cheat codes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you made the ethical decision to not do that. You chose yeah. honesty, authenticity, and therefore freedom. That's incredible. He would say, I don't know how you did it. And I said, I can tell you what happened to me, but he didn't want to hear it. He only wanted to hear the material side of winning and nothing else. Did you expect the story to be so freaking good? I, when I tuned into it, I knew that he had something very powerful to say and that there was going to be something that was going to be surprising to me. It's all been shocking. I mean, I just knew your little part of the family. I had no idea what was. And you haven't even, and you haven't heard the most shocking part yet. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't wait. It's like the freaking life of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh no, no. Oh my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> don't worry you no. lived 11 years longer than him mm. this is going to be the ending of this week's episode and stay tuned for part two i just want to give a plug to Gijo. can you tell us where people can find you your instagram your facebook tell us about the super exciting projects that you're working on right now too sure you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Both have the same handle. Twitter is probably the best. It's J E E J O P A L L A Y I. That's the handle at Jijopalai. That's my full name. And then, what is your Instagram photography page? National Geographic. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay. You and- can follow me there too. It's National Geographic is the handle, or you can search by that. Yeah, so clever. His photography is breathtaking and stunning. And then he's in the middle of writing a book. Do you have the name? That's right. No, I've been playing with some of it and uh, we haven't landed on it. And so we decided to finish the writing, finish the editing, and then we were going to send it to the launch team to kind of pick certain names or if they had suggestions. You know, some things comes to my mind. I definitely wanted to make it a little catchy, but not too complex, you know, something simple. And, and the premises of your time in the cult, right? And the family. Well, I'm actually writing um, two parallel stories at the same time. It's my growing up and the spiritual side of the Catholic Church, the cults exiting and what it is now. And an underlying story is how I navigated the corporate world without a degree and how I got to and what strengthened what was the power behind and then kind of flicking back to that spiritual side in and out. And that's kind of like how this book is structured. Wow, fascinating. So he has a book coming out. He has a potential podcast coming out, right? Yeah, potential. Yeah, I'm still working on it. I recorded a few and I don't, I'm not as brave as you guys are. 
to publish one. And well, maybe one day, so hopefully, I would love to use that as a platform also for the book launch. So hopefully soon, I'll let you know as soon as we put that out and so you can listen to some of that. Yeah. Okay, so and we'll have the links for all of his stuff in the show notes as well as how you can find us, how you can contact us if you would like to share your story as well. We hope to see you guys next week. Talk to you later. Bye. We love you. Bye.